Okay, there we go. Good morning, everyone. I'm Joe Collins, and it is nice to be together this morning. I want to appreciate. I want to say thank you to everyone for uh, giving to special missions this morning, as uh, that is a really important uh, thing that we do in our congregation. Uh, once a year, we give to the needs of other churches around the world, specifically in Eurasia. Uh, and they are always very grateful for all the energy and, and time and, and effort that we put into saving the money so that we can give it to them and then they have some funds for the next year to use to support the work that they're doing over there. So thank you for that. Also want to thank everyone, the ushers and everyone for helping put the service on this morning, all the singers for Darren and Jenny hosting us this morning. Give them a round of applause and say thank you. It's nice when things are starting to come together. I don't know if you noticed it, but we have official communion trays now. And that was pretty cool with the little insert for the bread in there. So it's just one, one thing to pass, and that works out. It's much better than those little cups that nobody could figure out how to open, right? Those things were hard to get open. So, you know, we are becoming a real church. Can you believe it? We are. We're actually becoming a real church. How great is that? Super excited. We've only been uh, doing this for the past few months, really, out here in Simi Valley. And uh, now the next thing, now that we've got these pieces in place, the next thing is we got to start growing. Amen? Amen. That's the idea. If we want to survive, we got to grow. Uh, if you didn't get a connection card, go ahead and raise your hand. I think our ushers in the back, Quentin and Hunter, we have some extra connection cards. Put your hand up high and we'll get you a connection card if you need one. As, as was said before, you can write uh, your uh, notes on there. And if you remember uh, to put your name and email and you tear it off, you can give it to one of the ushers at the end of service and we'll send you our newsletter. That's what we'll do just so you know what's going on in our church out here uh, in Simi Valley. Now, I want to start off uh, the, the message today with a question, and I have an image on the screen. I want you to look at the screen above me. Who here knows, who here knows what this image is? It's a, it's a hat, an Uncle Sam hat, and it looks like it's being tossed or thrown through a ring, right? Has anybody ever seen that image before? Okay, well, it, it's the hat in the ring image. It's actually a, a pretty uh, 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 famous image in our nation's history. It was the logo of the 94th Aero Squadron during World War I. You may have heard of a man named Eddie Rickenbacker, the, the ace of aces, our first fighter pilot ace. He served in World War I. He was in the hat in the ring squadron. But this, this idea, that the hat in the ring, it really represents a challenge. I don't know what just happened there, but we'll start over. It represents uh, a challenge. It actually comes from the early 1800s when uh, boxing matches were more uh, things that would break out in the middle of a bar or middle of a barn somewhere, right? And in those days, boxing rings were actually rings. They were actually round. That's why we call it a boxing ring and not a boxing square. And, you know, as, ever, as people would be fighting, you might think, hey, I think I can take that guy on. And so you would throw your hat into the ring, signifying I want to make a challenge to that person. Or someone might throw the hat in the ring and point you out, signifying that they are challenging you to a fight. That's what the idea of a hat in the ring means. It means to make or take up a challenge. We're going to come back to this in our sermon. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, and we have the, the words on the screen above. If you don't have a, a Bible, you can follow along. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit 
the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What we just read is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached. Jesus taught it early in His ministry. And it was really the most seminal teaching of Jesus' ministry. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount sort of summed up everything that Jesus taught. It was His entire method and His message all in one sermon. And everything we read about Jesus and everything He taught and did after that really has a connection or really comes from the principles laid down in the Sermon on the Mount. And those principles are actually found in the very beginning of the sermon in what we call the Beatitudes. That's what we just read, the Beatitudes. It's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And these Beatitudes identify eight essential characteristics of a follower of Jesus Christ. These are the things, if you were to condense it down, what are the basics? What's the starting point for someone who wants to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, here they are. These eight things. And in our series, Losing My Religion, we've been focusing on each one of them one at a time. Today we're on the third one. Blessed are they, or blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now before we get into that study of just that statement, of that beatitude, we have a couple things we have to make sure we, we clarify, and we do this every week at the beginning of every one of these sermons. The first one is, is that the Beatitudes are meant for all followers. In other words, Jesus wanted every person who would come out of the crowds, who would step out of the crowd at hearing him preach, they would step out and say, hey, Jesus, I want to sign up. I want to be one of your disciples. That means student. I want to be one of your followers. I want to be on your team. Well, if you were to do that, then Jesus would say, okay, well, then these are for you. These eight Beatitudes, this is the starting point. They're for everyone. There was no standard. There was no difference in standard. Jesus didn't say, for you, you have to follow two. For you, you have to follow six. For you, you have this level. For you, you have that level. No, there was one standard for everyone who wanted to be a follower of Jesus Christ, whether rich, poor, smart, not so smart, whatever. One standard. The second thing we got to realize about the Beatitudes is that Jesus intended for all his disciples to manifest or to express all of the Beatitudes. You couldn't say, well, I'm really good at mourning, but you know, I'm not so good at being a peacemaker, so I don't have to worry about that one. No, we all need to manifest all of the Beatitudes. If you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to have to express, these things are going to have to be expressed in your life. Thirdly, no one is born with these Beatitudes. You cannot, don't think for a minute, no matter how awesome you are and how awesome your mom told you you were your entire life, you are not born with these. You may have some tendency, you may be a more nice person than the next person, but that's just a personality trait. That's not a Beatitude. A Beatitude is something much more profound, much more significant, and really only comes about by becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. You cannot manifest these under your own strength, under your own power. They're not a personality trait. Fourthly, the Beatitudes separate followers from non-followers. If you want to know, how do you identify a real follower of Jesus Christ? Well, the Beatitudes will be manifest in their life. They will be evident. Somebody may say they're a follower of Jesus Christ, but if they don't express these things, if these things are not found in their life, then they're not a follower of Jesus Christ. And lastly, the Beatitudes are of a whole different paradigm. They're a whole different world. They're totally foreign and different than what we uh, 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 understand here in this environment, in this world, in this paradigm. 
They're otherworldly. And as, as, often, as it has often been said, that, that followers of Jesus, you know, they, they're, they're in the world, but they're not of the world. They have one foot in this world and one foot in another world, and that's just the truth. Jesus calls us to a standard that really comes from a completely different place. So before we focus on our beatitude for today, let's, let's pray now and ask God to open up our hearts with this basic understanding and, and background so that we can really get into what it means to be meek. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, it is great to be together, and we thank you so much for this time and for this great group of people, and we ask for your spirit to speak to every one of us, help us to know what it means to be meek, and to embrace it, and to allow it to be manifest in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, blessed are the meek. Of course, it goes on to say, for they will inherit the earth. You know, in my study of the Beatitudes, the more I study them the more I see how otherworldly they really are. I mean, when you think about two weeks ago when we started the series, and blessed are the poor in spirit, and remember the image of the Monopoly guy with the pockets turned inside out, you know? It wasn't referring to material poverty, but it was, it was a spiritual poverty. Uh, the, the, the mindset, the understanding that we as people really are, are not worth a whole lot. We really don't have a lot to offer. When you think of the billions of people that are alive on earth today and that have also that have ever lived, who are we? Who is any one of us in that mass of humanity? Not much. Right. We're like a, a pizza box without a pizza in it. It's not worth a whole bunch, but when you put a pizza in it, suddenly that pizza box becomes quite valuable right? You, you, you want the box because of what's in it. And that's what Jesus wants us to be, empty boxes that he can fill up. He can put value into us. That's not what the world thinks. That's not how the world thinks. That, that's so foreign to the world. The second thing we looked at last week, blessed are those who mourn, those who grieve over their sin and the sin of the people around them. Jesus is looking for people who are broken. They're aware of their brokenness. Wow, way to start a movement. Let's get a bunch of empty and broken people together. Yeah, this is what we're going to do. It's so opposite of how the world thinks. And now he says, blessed are the meek. You know, this must, in my opinion, been a surprise to the audience. I think the whole sermon must have been a bit of a shock. I think it's a shock to us. The more I study it, the more shocked I am at what he's, what he's asking from us, what he's calling us to be. Empty, broken and meek, it's so different than from what the world thinks. You think about the history, the setting of this, of this message. Jesus lived in, in, uh, in Israel in, uh, in the first century at a time when they were conquered by the Roman Empire. Previously, in their past, Israel was once a great nation. Somewhere around 1000 BC, they were a great nation, one of the greatest nations in the world. But after a few hundred years, they were conquered, they were defeated, and they had been conquered ever since. They were occupied ever since. And you come to the time of Jesus and they're still occupied. They're occupied by the Romans. And throughout that occupation, throughout all those years, all those generations where different kingdoms would take over different kingdoms and Israel never got its chance again. It never got to be prominent again. It was just always subject to some other power. The Israelites were frustrated and they wanted to be a sovereign nation again. They wanted to have their own country again. And throughout that period of time, and even afterwards, the Jews were constantly rebelling and revolting because they were trying to get their country back. And then they would get 
the, the, the revolution would be, would be quashed and they would be subject again. And there was just intense frustration. In the time of Jesus, this was really heightened. People really wanted to be free of Roman occupation. And so whenever a new person would pop on the scene and seem to be someone of note like Jesus was, Jesus was well known in Israel. He had performed miracles. He had healed people. He taught amazing messages. People would, whenever someone like that would pop up, people would rally around them and there would be this intense pressure to make them king, to start the war, to get the revolution going and throw off their, over, their overlords, the Romans and whoever it was, and to reestablish the nation. And Jesus felt that pressure. As he taught this message, as he taught other messages, he felt the pressure of the people to make him king because they wanted their country back. They wanted to be a sovereign nation again. And then Jesus, to that audience, and in that moment says, I'm looking for empty, broken, and meek people. That must have been like, what are you talking about? That's not what we're looking for. We need conquerors. We need tough fighting men. We're not looking for this kind of stuff. We're looking for something else. And it must have shocked them. This entire sermon must have come as quite a shock to the audience. We, we want you to be our leader, our king, our warrior. And, and you're talking about being empty and broken and meek. That just doesn't make sense. How can that work? But that's not what Jesus called his followers to be. He wasn't calling them to be conquerors, to be warriors. He was calling them to be meek. It's altogether different than how the world views, or how the, how the Jews in Jesus' day viewed their calling. That's not what we're supposed to be. And I think even in our day and age, it's altogether different than what we're, what we're trained to, to think like. We, we're trained to express ourselves, to be comfortable with ourselves, to be strong and empowered and powerful people and manifest whatever outcome, whatever, whatever uh, desires we want out of life. We're trained to be that way. You can watch the commercials and they tell us to do that. But Jesus called us to be empty, broken, and now he calls us to be meek. It's altogether different. You know, human effort in the name of self-interest is just not compatible with the teaching of Jesus Christ. So let's talk about what meek isn't. We've been doing this every week. We, we have the word and then we talk about what it isn't because I want you guys to be excited and ready for what it is. So I'm taking as much time as I can, stalling as long as I can to build up tension in you so that at some point you're going to go, finally, tell us what it is. We know what it is and we know all the background. We understand it, but tell us what it is. Well, I'm going to have to wait because I've got some more information to tell you what it isn't. I'm going to make you wait for it. Wait for it. What is it not? Meekness is not weakness. It's easy to confuse the two, and I think we often do. In fact, most people in our day and age think of it as weakness. But it is not weakness. Meekness is not inactivity or laziness. It doesn't mean we sit around and do nothing or, or we just you know, wait for something else to happen. It also isn't fatalism, meaning... Well, it's all going to go whatever the way it's going to go, so I have very little say in the matter, so just let things happen the way they happen. No, meekness is none of those things, and it's also not a spirit of compromise. It's not, well, okay, whatever, I, I want this, and you want that, and you know, i got to bend and always accommodate you. That's not what meekness is. It's not these things. 
It's not weakness, inactivity, laziness, fatalism, and compromise, or anything like that. So what is it? Well, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, was originally written in Greek, and and the Greek word that's used for the word meekness is pros, P-R-A-U-S, pros. In English, we have no equivalent word. So that's why we have to take some time and study this word out. We have to get a sense of what it is because we don't have an equivalent word for this word in English. So we kind of have to put this word together to get a proper understanding. We have to make a composite picture of the word so that we can understand what meekness means. So pros, literally translated, basically means gentle, mild, or even humble. It's used to describe a soothing medicine. It's used to describe a gentle breeze. It's used to describe a broken colt or horse. And because each of these usages focuses on something powerful, like medicine can be quite powerful, wind can be quite powerful, a a horse is a quite a, a powerful animal, People tend to focus on the powerness, the power side of the word meekness. And so they, they describe it as bridled power or controlled power. And that's a great way to think of the word meekness or meek. There's strength under control. But I think there's more to it. And so the best way to put this word together is to look at three examples. We've got, and we could look at a lot more, trust me, but just for our purposes and for our time's sake, We're going to look at three quick examples in Scripture and then put together a picture of what the word meek really means. Example number one, Genesis chapter 13, 7 through 9. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abraham said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your your herders and mine. For we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. So here, this takes place way back in the history of Israel, all the way back to what we call the person we call Father Abraham. You know, Abraham's called Father Abraham because he's considered the father of faith. Jews, Christians, and Muslims all identify Abraham as the father of faith. He was an incredible man. As a young man, he was called by God to go to a land that he knew not where. God just said, go, and Abraham left. That's how faithful he was. He went, and after a long journey and several hundred miles, he ended up in the land of Canaan, which is Israel today. And along the way, he became quite powerful, quite successful. At one point in his life, he basically adopted his nephew, Lot. Lot, uh, uh, Abraham's brother had died, that was Lot's father, and Abraham had no children of his own, he took Lot in and basically adopted him. And so whenever you read Genesis about Abraham, you always see Lot right there, very close. What, a, what an incredible guy, what a loving person, took care of his own family and, and, and pulled in you know, his fatherless uh, nephew. And, and during their journeys, they became quite successful. God blessed them and they became quite successful. Abraham was a very powerful man. At one point, he was, you know, you could even call him a warlord. He was so powerful that there was a, a war broke out between different uh, tribal clans in the, in the promised land, and Lot got caught in the middle of it, and Abraham sent his own army to go f- rescue Lot. So Abraham was a powerful and wealthy and successful man. And Lot was too because of Abraham. And, and it got to the point to where they had so much wealth and so much success that that Lot's men and Abraham's men started quarreling because they, there just wasn't enough space for all the, 
the, the animals and the, the, the possessions they had. And so Abraham went to Lot and said, look, I'm the patriarch here. I've been taking care of you since you were a little kid. You need to do exactly what I say and go here and go there. He didn't do that, did he? He said to Lot, no, no, no. Look, decide where you want to go and I'll just go anywhere. I'll take whatever's left. And this incredibly powerful man was very gentle with his nephew Lot. So there's a quality of gentleness that comes into the word meekness. Let's look at another example. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 3 and 4. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. And David and his men were far back in the cave. The, man, the men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give you your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Now we're fast-forwarding several generations to a time in Israel's history when they were just on the verge of becoming a powerful nation. And they had a king named Saul. He wasn't a great king. And there was another man named David who was actually anointed by God through a prophet to be king. And, and, and a lot of people knew that David was really the, the, the true king. He was the king that God wanted. Saul was the king that, that people got. That happens a lot. And, and so Saul was very jealous of David. He was a very powerful king. Israel was, was, on the up and, it was an up-and-coming nation. And he was jealous of David and knew that David had been anointed. And so he often tried to kill David. And this is one of those times. He was trying to kill David. David was on the run. He was hiding. He, hide, he went and hid in a cave. And by chance, by the providence of God, Saul walks in to use the restroom into the cave. And David's men are there going, this is a gift from God. God's given him to you. Kill him, and it'll all be over. You can become king. It's finally, here it is. This is exactly what God said would happen. You, the promise is right there and you're within your grasp. And David it had all this power in this moment. He had all this authority, didn't he? I mean, he could have become the next king, and all he had to do was just kill Saul there while he was relieving himself. But David creeps up and cuts a corner of Saul's robe off instead. And Saul leaves the cave. And a little bit later, David goes out and shows everybody Saul's army. Look, I could have killed him in there. I'm not a bad guy. Here's a piece of his robe. And, and Saul's wrath against David relented for a time. They made peace and, and Saul left. But I want you to notice that here was David and how mildly he dealt with King Saul. Remember the word pros. It means gentle. It means mild. And David responded mildly. He used his power in a very mild-mannered way in this situation. So there's an element of mildness that comes in with the word meekness. The last example, Matthew chapter 26, 49 to 54. And of course, whenever you have a teaching of Jesus, there's no better example than Jesus himself. And so here we have Jesus. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, said Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think that I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? So we fast forwarded many generations to the time of Jesus, the first century. Remember the, the environment we talked about, how the people were looking for a king. They were wanting a conqueror. And this, this is at the height of Jesus' popularity. It's shortly after Palm Sunday. You know Palm Sunday. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey, and the whole town 
came out and laid palm branches and blankets in front of him. I mean, Jesus was incredibly popular at this moment. They were ready to crown him king. And then Passover came that week, and Jesus was with his disciples, and they had their Passover meal. It turned out to be the last Passover meal. And afterwards, they went into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray and to worship. And there, Judas, one of the 12 apostles, one of Jesus' closest friends, comes up. Now, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, they didn't like what Jesus had to say, but he was too popular for them to do anything about it. So they had to come up with a plan to get Jesus arrested before anybody in the crowd knew what was happening, before anybody in the town knew what happened. So the plan was to get him at night when no one was paying attention, and they had to have an inside man. And they got their man in Judas. They bribed him, and Judas agreed. And the signal was he would, he would come into the garden in the dark. It would be hard to see who's who. Judas would go right up to Jesus, give him a kiss, and that was a signal for the, the, uh, the, the, the temple soldiers to come out and seize him and arrest him quiet, hush-hush, in the middle of the night before anybody knew what was going on. And Judas does that, and the soldiers come forward to take Jesus. And, and, and if you read the other accounts of the Gospels, it says that all the apostles really drew their swords. They all got ready for a fight, and Peter just happened to be the one that took the first shot, and he cut off a guy's ear. And Jesus says, stop it. What are you doing? You see, the, the apostles, like everybody else, thought, well, I guess this is the start of the revolution right here. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's make it happen. So Peter pulled out his sword, and Jesus was like, well, stop! What are you doing? That's not, what, that's not how this is going to play out. That's not the will of God. And so we see here humility. Humility before the will of God. That was the, the meekness of Jesus. This isn't, this isn't how God wants this to go. This is, we're going a different route. And, and, and he tells the guys, put your swords away. And so we see in these three examples, we, three, we see really key qualities of meekness. The word prous, gentle, mild, and humble. But there's something else that I think is even to go a step further and understanding meekness that might help us. And we could probably go all day with this. We could, we could keep d d uh, uh, drawing ideas out of this word, meanings out of this word. But for time's sake, I want us to just stop here. Here's, here's what I see in the word meekness that I want to offer for your consideration. I want you to think about. I see selflessness. Abraham was selfless. Hey, I, whatever you want, Lot. That's why he was gentle, because he was selfless. David, hey, I'm not going to attack the king of Israel, even if he is a bad king. You see, selflessness in, in his mild approach to Saul. Humility. Jesus, hey, we could destroy everybody. I could get 12,000 angels right now, and we could wipe this place out, but that's not God's will. You see a selfless humility. But it's a selflessness. And so when we think about the word meek, I want you to think about selflessness, not strength. See, people tend to want to say it's strength under control, but I want you to say it's selflessness before God and others. So let's talk about selflessness for one minute. That's a tricky word. But it means to be more concerned with the needs and wishes of others than your own. And it runs counter to human nature. That's why it's so easy to be selfish. Because that's easier to do than being selfless. Because that's our nature. 
But spiritually, to be selfless, and, and the Beatitudes are spiritual qualities. They're otherworldly qualities. To be selfless spiritually involves more than just putting people first. It means putting God first. And that's exactly what we see Jesus when He said, how, what do you want me to do? This is not how this is going to happen. How can the Scriptures be fulfilled? It must happen this way. Jesus was selfless. He was humble before the will of God. It wasn't about Him. It was about doing God's will first. Now this is what Jesus called a blessed. That word blessed means fortunate. It means happy. It means ideal. This is the best way to be. To be selfless with your authority. Isn't that what the world needs right now? Yeah. Isn't that a quality we wish that world leaders around the world would express? Meekness? A selfless concern for others and for the will of God? Wouldn't the world be a tremendously better place if it was populated with leaders who were meek? What about Simi Valley? Wouldn't Simi Valley be a better place if it was filled with meek people? Well, God's calling you and me to be those people in Simi Valley. What about your family? Wouldn't your family be a better place if it was filled with meekness? If, if the leaders of the family, mom and dad, showed meekness, a selfless control over their authority, selflessness in their exercise of authority? Well, God's calling you to be meek. To be meek. To be that, that force of meekness in the family, in Simi Valley, and in the world. So how do we do it? How do we become meek? Three things that I want you to write on your connection card. Three simple things. Number one, and you can write the word remember, just abbreviate it, R-E with two dots like a colon, R-E, that means remember. Remember, you're empty and broken. That'll, that'll go a long way. If you just do that, if you just remember that you're just an empty vessel, that, that, that there's nothing particularly special about you other than what God puts into you, and that you're a broken vessel, that, that even if you try your best, you're still going to fail miserably because you have a sinful nature, and that's why we grieve. So if you just remember those two things, you're going to have a leg up on the competition. You're going to go away. You're going to have a, a head start on being meek. I'm empty and I'm broken. But here's the number two. And this is tricky. I came up with a little fun little phrase here that I like. I think you're going to like it. Ready? Think about yourself less. See how that works? That's selflessness. Think about yourself less. What a concept. Who would have thunk it? Think about yourself less. That will go a long way in helping you become meek in helping you become selfless because it's not all about you all of the time it's not about me all of the time more often than not it's about other people and most of the time all the time it's about God but we can't see that because we're too busy thinking about ourselves all the time and so what do we do we use our power to satisfy ourselves And we don't, we don't act with meekness. We're not meek people. 
Thirdly, throw your hat in the ring. I said we'd come back to it. Throw your hat in the ring. Decide to follow Jesus. Remember, these characteristics are not just personality. They're not just things we can add to ourselves. These are spiritual qualities that only come about by following Jesus Christ. You cannot become poor in spirit. You cannot mourn over your sin. And you cannot become meek unless you follow Jesus. You have to be a student, a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's an impossibility because only by following Jesus are you, I don't know the word, magically, supernaturally, spiritually gifted these characteristics. It's the only way to truly become selfless, to truly become meek, to truly grieve over your sin, to mourn, to truly be poor in spirit, to know that you're empty and let God fill you up. It's the only way. You have to follow Jesus Christ. And so I'm asking you, if, if this is new to you, to step out of the crowd. Because that's what Jesus wanted. When He taught the Sermon on the Mount, He was looking for people to step out of the crowd and say, sign me up. Unfortunately, most people didn't. Very few people did. A lot of people got on the bandwagon. A lot of people liked hearing Him speak. A lot of people liked seeing Him do miracles. But all those people wanted Him to be the King. There were very few that actually heard what Jesus was saying, realized how different it was from what everybody else thought and stepped out of the crowd and became followers and that's what jesus is calling you to be a follower of his so throw your hat in the ring make a decision to follow i know many in this room have in fact almost everybody in this room have i've known you for years you're faithful disciples of jesus christ and i would say every one of you is an awesome person and i'm proud to be numbered among your number So then what, what's the message to you? Well, I think we've got to go further. You see, becoming meek isn't a one-time thing. It's an all-the-time thing. We just have to keep doing it. We have to go back to the well again and again and again right. to become poor in spirit, to mourn over our sin, and to become meek. And so I'm calling you to go back to the well, to come out of the crowd again and follow Jesus. There's more to this, this characteristic, meekness, than just a blessing. You know? It's more than just, hey, this is a great way to be. This is the ideal way to be. It's more than that. There's actually a promise that Jesus gives. And He gives a promise to every one of the Beatitudes. Every one of the Beatitudes is a happy, blessed, fortunate, ideal way to be. And with that comes a promise. And the promise is that they will inherit the earth. Well, what on earth does that mean? It means, and I'll just be as clear as a bell as I can be, it means the selfless will be given everything. The selfless will be given everything. And let's just talk about for starters. You think about meek people, and because meek people are other-centered, they're not consumed with themselves, but they're more concerned about others, meek people make great friends. And even in our broken world, even in a world that doesn't appreciate selflessness, it does appreciate friendship. It's considered a valuable commodity in our day and age, and in our world has been forever, to have friends. And so meek people have friends. 
And that's something that they inherit right now. Here and today, if you become a selfless person, your friendships will grow and multiply and become better, and you will be a rich man and a rich woman because of those friendships. It's a valued commodity. But more than that, because a meek person is not concerned with their will, they're concerned with God's will, a meek person is also a contented person. They're not trying to keep up with the Joneses. They're not worried about getting the next best thing because everybody else got it. They're not trying to amass great fortunes. They're not trying to conquer some great land. Now, it doesn't mean they're weak. It doesn't mean they're idle. It doesn't mean they're lazy, fatalistic. It doesn't mean that they compromise. They can still be successful. They can still be active and energetic. And, and, and there's very successful people that are very meek at the same time. There's, there's no conflict there. But because they're centered on God's will and not their will, they often find themselves more content with their place in life or their possessions than everyone else. So think about that right here and now. Jesus is saying, hey, if you're meek, even right now in this world, in this day and age, for starters, there's two things right off the bat that you're going to get friends and contentment. And those are two valuable commodities in our day and age. It's as if you've inherited more than the guy that has all kinds of money and all kinds of possessions, but has no friends and is not content. And we could go on and on about the the rewards of meekness, even in our day and age, right here and right now. But the promise is not really about today. The promise is about tomorrow. It's about a future promise. I want you to look at Revelations 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and and, 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 and them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So now we're, we're, we're learning from a follower of Jesus Christ. His name was John. We call him John the Apostle. He was the only follower of Jesus Christ, the, of, the, of the immediate uh, group of followers, the, what we call the apostles. He was the only one to die of old age. All the others were persecuted and martyred. They were murdered for their faith. Now John was persecuted. He was tortured. He suffered a great deal. And then he ended up being exiled. But in exile, he lived for a long time. And in his old age... God blessed him with a vision, and that's the book of Revelations. And this vision covered a lot of different things. But at the end of the vision, God gave him a glimpse of the afterlife. And he wanted it to to be shared with us. Because Jesus said, the meek will inherit the earth. And, and And what John saw in his vision was that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. That this heaven and this earth will pass away. It will be replaced by a new heaven and a new earth. Now, I don't know what your concept of heaven is. A lot of people think of it as clouds and angels with harps or golden streets or or pearly gates, right? But the reality is heaven is a physical place. It is the earth. It's going to be made new. Think of Eden. It's more like that than it is a cloudy flow about place. Now, I don't know what heaven's going to be like. I know it's going to be a bazillion times better than what we have here, Even the best parts of here, it's going to be better. But it is going to be a physical place. We are going to live together in a physical afterlife that's going to be perfect and eternal, and it's going to be the best gift 
we could ever ask for. Better than your new mountain bike, better than your new truck, better than all the things you wish you had. By a lot. It's a promise. Now, in this vision, it's interesting, John says that there's no sea. Now, you think about the sea for a minute. What does the sea, when you look at the globe, what does the sea do? Well, the sea divides the land. It separates people. And so when, when John uses this phrase, there'll be no sea, he's, it's a figurative use of, of the word. And, and, and what he's saying is there's no division. There's not going to be divided people in this new heaven and earth. We're all going to be on the same page. And guess what? It's all going to be meek people. That's what's going to be left. A world full of undivided and meek people. Unselfish, other-centered, God-centered, meek people. It's they that will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. At this time, I'm going to ask two couples to come up on stage. Jeremy and Stephanie Hicks and Eugene and Shannon Cochran. Come on up. Now, you may uh, wonder, why are these uh, wonderful people up on stage with me? Well, I'm here to introduce to you our new student ministry leaders. Here they are. Thank you. Got a standing ovation in the back. Now, you, now you may say student ministry. What does that mean? Well, student ministry is high school through college. Students. Student ministry. Now, you may be saying... Really? We, we have a student ministry? Well, we do as of today. We have officially started our student ministry. To give you a little uh, background, Simi Church officially launched off the ground uh, a couple months ago when we started having regular Sunday services out here. I think it was in March. Now, please be aware that our official start date has not been determined yet because Ethel and Anthony Evans decided to, to join us for the first year. So we just aren't having a start date yet. So this doesn't count as our official start date, Anthony, because we don't know when that clock's going to start ticking, but you're here for as long as we need you. So, but they, they're here. We love them. Anyways, but we started a couple months ago with regular Sunday services out here and very quickly needs became evident. And one of the big needs was a student ministry. I mean, we, we've got a whole bunch of high school kids and kids soon to be in college. Plus, there's high school kids in high school and there's kids on the college campuses that need to hear the message of Jesus Christ. They need to be taught. They need to know what Jesus is offering them and what is the right way to be and the right way to live and what's going to give them that eternal reward in heaven. But we didn't have anybody dedicated. And so over the course of months, God put it on the heart of these two people. This wasn't me picking them. It was them bugging me. We got to do something. I want to do something. How can I get involved? What can we do? It was on their hearts. They threw their hat in the ring to work with the youth ministry. They threw the challenge out there. Got to wear a hat. And when you have that, you got to run with it, right? I mean, at some point, you got to respond to that. Here's two people that are willing to go further, and, and they're going to be stretched. They're going to know what it means to be poor in spirit, to grieve over sin. They're going to know what it means to be meek and to be selfless as they give to these student kids and all the other things that Jesus, Jesus teaches. And we've warned them already. I've had uh, many talks and explained them very clearly the call and the expectation and what it's going to require. And it's going to require a tremendous amount of meekness. But I believe that these are the right people for the job. Yeah. 
Jeremy and Stephanie have a wonderful family. Their oldest son, Aaron, is baptized. He's faithful. He's a wonderful person. Eugene and Shannon, uh, they've all been Christians a long time. Eugene and Shannon have an amazing family. Their son, Quentin, has been studying the Bible. They've done an amazing job with their, with their kids. I believe they're the right people. Now, you may say, but we need young people. We need some college people. We need some... I'm being honest here. Stephanie's extremely young, and so is Shannon, but Jeremy and Eugene, you know, they're up there. Well, we got to baptize them, guys. We can't go, we can't go uh, steal them from somewhere. We got to find them. So if we need some young people to work in this ministry, then, then start meeting some young people and start inviting them out. And let's get some young people baptized in the Seamy Church. We started out as a family ministry. It was mostly people my age with kids. And that's awesome. But that's no way to build a church. You can't stay there. It's not going to go anywhere. You're going to have to grow. So we're going to need people like them to come out of the crowd again. Throw their hat in the ring and go further. And that's what these two couples have done. And we are so grateful for them. So the details. Well, I'm not going to get too much into details. But what we're asking you to do is if you have a kid in the student ministry age, high school through college, get them around these people. Invite these people into your home. Take care of these people. Encourage your kids to spend time with them. Don't be afraid of these people. Let them get involved. Now, we all know each other, right? I mean, this is a family talk. We all know each other. We've been doing this a long time. And you might go, yeah, but I know this and I know that. Well, you're going to have to let it all go, aren't you? Ain't no challenge, Because this is what God has given us. And we're grateful for it. I hope that this is an example for some of you to come out of the crowd and figure out what it is God's called you to do. Because if we're going to build Simi Church, we're all going to have to throw our hats in the ring. It's more than just meeting out here on Sundays. It's more than that. We're going to have to throw our hat in the ring. We're going to have to open our mouths. We're going to have to start talking to other people and be meek, be selfless, and start giving and loving other people to get them in the door. Because they don't just show up. So we have a couple gifts for them. And uh, the gifts, the, it's, uh, you know, I wish we had a great budget. We could give them big posters or something, but we don't. We gave them books. And, and I want to explain the gifts for a minute. Can I look at it? This book is called Crazy Love by Francis Chan, a, a real popular Christian writer. And the idea uh, it, that I want to communicate by giving these couples this book is that it's going to require some crazy love <laughs> to, to, to take care of the student ministry. And so... They're going to have to go deeper in that. And, and the idea is for them to share the books, by the way. The gifts are for both of them. And now this book, you guys are going to laugh at this one, but this book's called Starlight and Time. Now you may wonder, what in the world is that book about? Well, I love, and my little side hobby is creation science, the idea that what the Bible says is true and can be scientifically justified, even when it comes to the origins of the earth and the universe. And this is a great book. It's actually a theory on how the early parts of Genesis could be true. It's not proven. No theory is proven. It's a theory. But what it does is it gives us a starting point, an idea that, you know what, we can trust God at His Word. We can. And that's the kind of church, I don't know about you, but I want to be. I want to be a church that trusts God at His Word. So if He says it, we do it. Or we believe it. And so I think no ministry needs this more than the student ministry because they are bombarded with baloney 
all day long. And so I think both these families would do well to read the book and grow in their knowledge of that so that they can help the kids and give them a, another perspective of the Bible, uh, one that's sound, not only biblically, but also scientifically in a lot of ways. So those are the gifts. There's cards in there for you. Hopefully we gave you the right cards. But guys, let's stand up. Let's give them a round of applause. At this time, I'm going to ask Anthony Evans to come on up. Now, you guys know Anthony as a dear friend of my wife and I, him, him and his wife Ethel, and many of you. And uh, even though Anthony's younger than me, he's, he's a lot like a spiritual elder to me because he's done a tremendous job with his family. His daughter's uh, married in the full-time ministry in our sister church in Santa Cruz. His son, Matt, is in the campus ministry, faithful disciple at Pepperdine. Uh, and they are great examples to all of us of, of the kind of parents and, and people we ought to be. And so I've asked Anthony to say an elder-like prayer. He's not an elder, but he's, he's an elder in my heart to me. And so I've asked him to come, pray for this ministry, pray for what we're doing. After that, we'll, uh, we'll be seated. I'll close us out with a quick thought, and we'll, we'll be done. We'll have a final song, and we'll be done. All right, let's go arm in arm. Father, we thank you so much for all that you are doing here, God. Thank you for allowing us to be here and to be doing the work that you have called us to do, Father. Mm 